The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of the Keep or Cut podcast, where myself, Pete Ball, and Chad Young break down odd new leagues, keeper leagues, and long-term leagues. Today, we got a special episode where we did a mock draft this week. We were mocking a 23-round keeper league draft uh, where guys would be keeping 10 players each in 2022. The price tag would be the round in which you took that player. This is a rotisserie league, standard five by five. And there were some really interesting picks that went down here. So I kind of want to turn over to Chad. Chad, what's going on, man? What'd you think of this draft? How do you feel like you did? <laughs> I don't know how I did. <laughs> it, it's always weird to draft and not play it out. You know, it's like, oh, I got these guys. I think I did well. We used couch managers to do the draft. And couch managers does this thing where they, as the draft is going on, they use their projections to project the standings and it puts a little number next to your name so you can see what you're how you're doing in theory but i don't know that i agree with all their projections and so like in in another league i mean i'm doing another slow draft right now that we act, that actually am going to play out i took trevor rosenthal they have me down with two saves this year as a team and I'm, <laughs> I'm fairly confident that's a bad projection and that trevor rosenthal will get two, more than two saves but maybe i'm wrong so um <laughs> So I just like I look at this and I'm like I feel like I did pretty well. I like my team. We'll talk about it a little bit more a little bit later. But this was fun. I've been doing so many drafts lately, and it was sort of nice to have one where it was like I didn't have to feel a ton of pressure. I could sort of make the picks I wanted to make because I know we're not playing it out. I wanted to take it seriously, but didn't feel like I had to like build a spreadsheet and build all these projections and like just rolled with it. And I don't know. I thought it went pretty well. Makes me wonder if I'm so doing too. too much prep for my other leagues. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, did, it did not take up much time for a slow draft. It kind of moved well. I think we should note up front that Carlos Carrasco, the, his injury was released after he was drafted. So you're going to hear him as a ninth round pick in this. Obviously, he would have probably dropped a lot further than that given his recent hamstring tear. But Chad, I'm hearing that's only a grade one. So who knows how bad that's actually going to be. Yeah, the, the news on that, I feel like keeps changing. Like some days I hear it's, you know, a few weeks and some days I hear it's a couple months and I, I don't know who knows the Mets. I mean, it's weird, right? It's a new Mets regime. So who knows, but 
you hear pitcher got hurt and the Mets are thinking it might be okay. He'll probably be back soon. And my immediate reaction is like, oh, his career is probably over because <laughs> <laughs> that's how the Mets have seemed to hit to go lately. So either way, I think that's important to note up front. But other than that, I think that's the only real hiccup that we had to doing the slow draft, you know, in terms of, of news and things changing, what else would have happened. So I, I think it's pretty accurate in terms of how this would have gone down had this been a real draft. And we need to dive right in because there are 12 teams here. And the first team, and I want everybody to know that this was not done on purpose. First of all, Chad was the organizer, but the first overall pick, and honestly, I don't know if I would have wanted the first overall pick had this been a real draft, but it was me. I ended up with the first overall pick. So Chad, I'm not going to get too specific. I just want to hear, what'd you think of my team? What'd you think of my draft? Yeah, I really like most of what you did. You and I have a few guys that we disagree on, we'll say. And so, for example, you took Trevor Bauer in the second I've just been avoiding Trevor Bauer this year. I think he's sort of overrated. Maybe you took Trevor Bauer in the third. You took him at the turn between the second and the third. And so I've been sort of avoiding him. In fact, the only team I have Trevor Bauer on is the Pitcherless Podcast League that you drafted for us. So he he's not a guy I've got in a lot of places, but I don't think that was a bad pick, especially at the very end of the second round or top, top of the third, whichever it was. He's been going earlier in some other places. Totally fine with it there. You took Salvador Perez, who's not my favorite catcher. He tends to fade in the second half of leagues. I think he looks really good this year because he didn't have to do a second half last year. And I think that his price is inflated because of that. I would have waited a little longer in catcher. I did wait a little longer in catcher. I always wait longer in catcher. But I really like a lot of what you did. I loved the the Chris Paddock pick. It was a little bit of a reach, but it was a really good time for him. When I say a little bit of a reach, I took all of our draft results and I compared them to the last two weeks of NFBC ADP. And so when I say something like, oh, Chris Paddock was a little bit of a reach, what I mean by that is you took Paddock 72nd overall. His ADP the last couple of weeks is 102. So you took him you know, two and a half, three rounds early. But in a keeper league, if he reestablishes his value, he's going to be a great value for you there this year and into the future. And so I have no issue with that. I really like that pick. I like that you went out and got Andrew Vaughn. I, you picked him up in 12th round. You followed him up in the 13th. So at that 12-13 turn, you picked up Andrew Vaughn and Alex Karoloff, which I thought was great. I'm a little... I'd be a little nervous if I were you about Vaughn being my only first baseman. There's a lot of excitement about Vaughn. He's had a great spring training. He is obviously an immensely talented player and and should have a very bright future. He's also never seen anything above high A, and he wasn't particularly good in high A. He wasn't bad. I mean, I'm not saying he's, and I'm not saying he's going to be bad, but I think he could have some growing pains, and I think it could take him a little while to to return the kind of value fantasy players are hoping for. If you go back and look at his season last year, not last year, 2019, right? We have no idea what he did last year because of the alternate site stuff. 2019, he got 16 plate appearances in rookie ball and crushed it, but it was 16 plate appearances. They moved him up to low A and he had a 253, 388, 410 slash line, which is good for a 374 Woba, which is good, but it's not great for a ball for a guy who's supposed to move fast since 21 years old it was enough for them to move him up to high a and in high a he had a 252 349 411 line which is a 354 woba which if he posts that in mlb this year you'd be like okay a 354 woba against mlb pitching for a 21 year old 22 year old is pretty good but it's it's not great And that's what he did against high A. And so I'm a little concerned that 
you're going to struggle at first base for like three, four months before he finally sort of gets his feet under him. If that's the case, at least you've got a stud first baseman for years to come, because if he hits the way I think he will hit, you're going to be giving up a 12th round pick next year for him. And that's that's a pretty good place to be. Yeah, that's totally fair on, on Vaughn. I'm not drafting him with too much confidence in a lot of my leagues this year. Not that, not that I don't think he's going to be good. I just think there's there's probably going to be an adjustment period. And it's on a team and a lineup where like they might not wait around if he's really struggling. It might be like, all right, go back to AAA and we'll figure this out. I was able to get Mount Castle a few rounds later. I do think there's a chance that, that Kirilov could get first base eligibility if, if you know, the injury prone Donaldson or Sunel, if something happens to either of them, I think, you know, Kirloff played 30 something games at first base in double A in 2019. So there's, there's hope there still, I probably won't have Vaughn for at least the first two weeks of the season. And then if he struggles that, that could definitely be an issue. I also really liked you had a run in the middle of the draft right after you made that paddock pick, which I really like. You made an Austin Meadows pick right after, right after that, which was a small reach, but not really. We talked about Meadows on our, our last two episodes ago, not our last episode, two episodes ago. We both really like him, so I totally get that. And then you had what I thought was a really nice run where Nick Castellanos, Hyunjin Ryu, and Jeff McNeil all fell to you anywhere from one and a half to two and a half, three rounds later than they've typically been going. And one of the things I really liked about that is... And we'll talk about this again in this draft. In Keeper League drafts, there's often these sort of like old veteran guys who fall because everyone's excited about the young guys that they might keep forever. You can get a lot of value for this year by letting those guys fall to you. But Castellanos, Ryu, and McNeil, like they're not young, but they're all young enough that you could keep them next year. And so now you've already got them at a discount of one to three rounds versus their actual value. So all they have to do is basically perform the way you would hope they perform. If they outperform their value this year, they're great keepers. If they perform the way you expect them to perform, they're good keepers. So that's a really good place to be with those guys. It's a lot better than some of these older players, I think, that people drafting a good value on. There's risk that they won't be keepers at all. Obviously, that's true for anybody, but I think these are three guys who are, are pretty safe for this year to bring you value. They're pretty cheap for this year to bring you value because they fell, and they're pretty safe to be keepers as well. Awesome. I don't want to spend the whole episode on my team, but there were two real strategic things at play here for me. First of all, when you're on the turn and there's a there's going to be a draft pick associated with your pick, you can't just rush in and be like, oh, yes, this player fell to me. I'm going to grab him because you want to use him with that second pick. Now, there were a few times where I was drafting on my phone and, and I messed that up where I wish I flipped those because I want to keep that earlier pick. For example, I did it correctly with my second and third round pick. I took you Darvish in the second and Trevor Bauer in the third, even though I was picking back to back. Bauer a little bit younger than you, Darvish. If I felt differently about that, I would want to make sure I want to take Darvish second. I think chances are they're both going to be really good. I'm a little bit higher on Bauer than you are, Chad, but not not much, believe it or not. I'm, I'm still a little bit on the fence with him. However, you know, next year, if I have to choose between a second round you, Darvish, or a third round Trevor Bauer, I think based on the age, Bauer is going to be a safer pick. The other thing was that because I kind of went pitcher heavy, you know, three of my first six picks were starting pitchers and two of them are on the wrong side of 30. I wanted to make sure at the end of the draft, I was setting myself up with some dark throws of starting pitchers who maybe I feel a little bit more comfortable keeping them. Because I'm definitely going to keep Juan Soto with my first round pick. If I don't want to give up my second and third to keep Darvish and Bauer as well. Well, 18th round, 19th round, 20th round, 21st. I took Tyler Molly, Dylan Cease, Eliezer Hernandez, and AJ Puck. Hoping that maybe at least one of those guys has a pretty strong year. They're all pretty young. And I can then keep them going into next year in place of one of those earlier 
pitchers. And the last thing I just wanted to acknowledge was Xander Bogarts in the fifth. I, I know you really like Bogarts, Chad. I thought that was a steal. And so I was sure to take Devers before him because I like Devers as well. And he's he's certainly younger than Bogey, but there's no way I'm not keeping Xander Bogarts for a fifth round pick next year. There's no chance of that. So I thought not only was I getting a quality player for this season, but I was also getting a keeper. Yeah, he went about 15 picks after his ADP because you were able to take him as your second pick on that turn. He's probably two rounds later than he should have been, even though it's only a round and a little bit of ADP value. So I, yeah, I thought that was a great pick too. I am a big fan. I wonder how much his issues with his shoulder have decreased his value this year such that he fell to you. But again, in a keeper league where the cost is the same, like unless that shoulder becomes a recurring thing, which I don't think it will, he's going to go right back to being a you know third, maybe in some cases, even second round pick in some leagues next year. And you're going to be very happy with him for a fit. Absolutely. So let's keep it moving. Dan Berman was next. I was chatting with Dan on the PitcherList Discord pretty much throughout the draft. He had a great draft. He is projected to finish first in this league. But again, Trevor Rosenthal is also projected to get two saves in this league. So I don't know how much we could depend on the projections. But I thought he had a nice draft. He got Marcus Semien, who fell really far for a 19th pick. And both Chad and I are pretty high on Marcus Semien. I think he's probably going to be a keeper for Dan next year, especially if we find out he signs in a pretty nice hitter ballpark after his one-year deal with Toronto is up. But otherwise, there are a lot of early picks that are going to be given up, I think. Like, he chose Kershaw over Corbin Burns in a keeper league where, you know, you you give up, obviously, as I've said multiple times now, the, the pick that you chose to take that player. For me, Chad, I think I would have gone Burns there, but I think I'm nitpicking. What are your, what are your thoughts on Dan's team? Let's leave aside any Burns versus Kershaw 2021 analysis because reasonable minds are going to disagree about which one of those guys is the better pick this year. I I think I would have gone Burns even in redraft, but in a keeper league, one of the things that you can do, and I think this team did this well, is just go get the guys you think are best this year and let the keepers figure themselves out later and set yourself up to win year one. And I think he's done that really well. I think there was a little bit of an early reach with Bregman. He took Bregman in the second round with pick 23. Bregman's ADP is around 47. So a little bit of a reach there. But then other than that, I mean, he took the T second, which, okay, fine. He took Kyle Tucker in the third round, a little bit of a reach, nine picks early, but that's not really anything. Glaber Torres in the fourth, but Torres has second base and shortstop here, which adds value to him versus NFBC. And then Kershaw slipped around and a half. Liam Hendricks slipped around and a half. Starling Marte slipped almost two rounds. Lance Lynn slipped over three rounds. The only other real reach he had was he took Dylan Carlson in, in the ninth. And I'm really high on Dylan Carlson this year, so I don't actually even mind that so much. So I look at what he did, and he, he let a lot of these sort of values fall to him. Anthony Rizzo with the 143rd pick. Rizzo's been going 105th in NFBC, and I think that's too late for him. I think he should be going earlier than that. So the fact that he got him another you know, 35, 40 picks later, he just got a lot of value there. And you already talked about Simeon. And so I look at this and I, I see a guy who basically said, I'm taking the best guy on my board for right now, regardless of what their keeper value is. And the keepers will figure themselves out. With 10 keepers, that does lead to the possibility that his eighth, ninth, 10th keepers won't be that exciting. However, I look at this team and I don't know about you, but like, 
Assuming he does well this year, he's going to be picking towards the end of the first round. So giving up a first for Tatis will be fine. I think giving up a third for Tucker will be fine. There is a good possibility that a guy like Starling Marte, a Glaber Torres in the fourth, Starling Marte's in the seventh, Dylan Carlson in the ninth, I think could be a keep, Sandy Alcantara in the 11th, and certainly Simeon in the 19th, Corey Kluber in the 17th. There's enough guys on this list that I think he's going to find his 10 keepers. And they won't necessarily be the absolute most exciting keepers out there, but they'll be good enough. And if he needs to rebuild, he'll rebuild. He can figure that out next year, but he's got himself in a good position for this year. And I think by the end of the season, he'll probably feel pretty good about his keepers. Not to mention the fact that he very easily could pick up two or three guys during the season who become keepers off the waiver wire. So I I really like this draft. I think it's a a now versus future draft. It's something that can work really well, especially when everyone around you is looking for future value. Agreed. And and I'd love to spend some time talking about Aaron Hicks, you know, in another episode, because if he really does bat third for the Yankees to get him in with the 21st round pick, and that's like around where Hicks is going. He's a steal, man, like everywhere. The one thing I wanted to bring up about Dan's team is just just talking strategy because in his position next year, I know it would cost him his first four picks, but I don't know if I'd want to throw any of those guys back into the draft. That makes keeping Kershaw even that much more difficult because then age is in play, but also you need a starting pitcher. And so if I were him, I would have maybe liked to have thrown more darts at starting pitchers, sort of like like what I did towards the end of the draft, at just young guys who could turn out to be a pretty solid pitching keeper. That makes it that much easier to not keep Kershaw and I begin to get some of those early picks back. But I'm with you. I love the value on those Hendricks, Marte, Lynn picks. Carlson was a was a good bargain. So uh, this was a solid draft. And then, Chad, we, we get into the pick number three, and that would be yours truly. So tell us, how, how'd you do here? I thought I did okay. I am... I'm an auction guy. I'm not a draft guy. And so drafts always make me a little bit uncomfortable because I can't target players the way I like to in an auction. The only guys who really, I think, sort of fell to me were Jorge Soler, Andres Jimenez, and Kyle Schwarber. I did a lot of reaching. I went after a lot of guys that I was excited about and thought would be good values for me in the future, regardless of sort of where they were going now. I reached a little bit for Sean Murphy, who you know I'm a a big fan of. I reached a little bit for Frankie Montas, who I think is more valuable than people realize. I reached quite a bit for Devin Williams. He was my biggest sort of early reach. I reached about five rounds for him. I think that Hayter might get traded. (laughs) And if that happens, Williams immediately becomes the number one reliever in baseball. And so this was a guy who I was like, I think he has a lot of value this year, even if all he does is get me some rate stats. And there's a possibility that I'm using an 11th round pick to keep the number one closer in baseball next year. That felt like a pretty good bet to make. The other reaches, I reached a little bit for Jordan Alvarez, but he does have outfield here. I reached a little bit for Alec Bohm. I reached a little bit for Dominic Smith, but I'm really high on those guys. And so those are all guys who I think can return the value I paid for them this year, let alone into the future. Late in the draft, I had taken Devin Williams early. I wanted to take Garrett Crochet late, which I ended up doing in the 21st round. In the 19th round, I took Joaquin Soria. I'm not really sure why I did that. Like, I wasn't really in a position to do much with saves. And then I went and took Soria, who's like an unexciting closer. I think I'm far enough behind in saves that I should have just said forget it and gone with somebody more interesting. Tarek Skubal, Casey Mize, AJ Puck, Davey Garcia, like all those guys went shortly after I took Soria. 
And I think I would have been better off grabbing and stashing one of them instead of adding 25 saves that are still going to leave me near the bottom in saves anyways. Fair assessment. There's there's a couple players I wanted to ask you about, Chad. Kind of agree. The Soria pick seemed a little uh, inconsistent with, with your strategy to that point. But uh, those two relievers that you grabbed, Devin Williams and Garrett Crochet, I mean, they're blocked by the two best closers in baseball. But if anything were happen to those two closers via trade, injury, what have you, either one of those guys, I, I would loop crochet in there with Devin Williams obviously he hasn't proven as much and he hasn't been quite as effective but he could be an amazing closer so in terms of reliever upside there's a lot here well and I I like crochet because I think they're going to move him back to the rotation so I think that I'm getting a dart throw relief pitcher or starting pitcher late there too right so my expectation for crochet my hope for crochet I guess I would say is the the Chris Sale path on my other podcast the Autobot podcast Justin Viber the host there talked about crochet we did a relief pitcher draft a couple weeks or last week and in that draft he took crochet and he talked about the comparisons between crochet and sale and they're pretty similar in terms of like they're both big tall lefties they throw some similar pitches they both throw hard they both moved very quickly through the white Sox organization they both were brought up as closers and or as relievers are going to spend somewhere between a year, year and a half, it sounds like in the bullpen before being moved back to the rotation. And that's my, my hope is that what I get is elite rate stats out of him out of the bullpen this year. And then a guy who I can keep as a very valuable starting pitcher going into 2022, but we'll see. I could definitely see that. I like that. I mean, I'm in an NFBC fifties where I took Liam Hendricks pretty early. And since I have this super long bench, I was sure to grab Aaron Bummer, who I assume would be their placement, but I grabbed crochet as well because that bullpen just seems so loaded. That would be very interesting if he was turned back into a starter this year, that, and that would provide your team with a lot of upside. But, Chad, I, I totally could have guessed this is your team if you hid the names, right? There are definitely names there that you like, whether it be Will Myers, Dominic Smith. But the one that stood out was definitely Adalberto Mondesi in the third. Now, in a rotisserie league, I actually kind of like this pick, but I wanted to give you a chance to, to talk about this controversial player. Yeah, it, that is... <laughs> that's not a pick I would normally make. I'm not really an Adalberto Mondesi fan per se. Obviously in a Roto league, he's going to steal a lot of bases. And I always like being in a position to not have to think about stolen bases anymore and to be able to spend the rest of the draft. Like I'm still going to go out there and get my Will Myers and guys like that who steal some bases, but it's not, it doesn't have to be a focus for me. He's been going sort of anywhere from late second to early third. This is sort of at the tail end of where he's been going. Not sort of a, not a guy I would say fell to me, but less expensive than I thought. I would have expected him. I I sort of expected him to be gone before he got to me in the second, let alone where I picked him in the third. And so I, I ended up basically taking him on two reasons. One is what I just said about the stolen bases, right? Okay, stolen bases are off the table. I don't have to think about them again. I'll pick up a few guys here and there, but like I don't have to draft for steals anymore. The other is he did have a red hot September. I think that red hot September is a fluke. I don't think he's going to be able to continue that. But if he does, he suddenly looks a lot more like Trey Turner than he does anyone else. And Turner is a guy who's been going anywhere in, you know, up to the top five in some drafts. So Mondesi for, in a keeper league, all of a sudden I was like, all right, there's at least the upside here that I've got a first round pick that I can stash with my third going into next season. Given that, like the possibility of keeping Acuna with having a good year this year and then keeping Acuna with my first and Mondesi with my third and being like, I have all the steals I need. <laughs> I've got two really good young players that I can, that I can build around. Like it just was, it was worth the risk. 
And I felt like the downside is he doesn't hit. He steals me 50 bases with nothing else. And I get those 50 bases. It was, it just felt like the downside was like, all right, I can take those 50 bases and bank them. And if he doesn't give me anything else, he doesn't give me anything else. And then I went back later and I took a young shortstop who I think is really interesting in case Mondesi doesn't work out. But I drafted Andres Jimenez in the 17th round. And I'm a big fan of Jimenez. And he seems to have won the starting job in Cleveland. And so it felt like, all right, I'm going to go take him. Jimenez is a guy who has been going in the last couple of weeks around 153 in NFDC drafts. I took him at 195. So he actually fell to me which sort of surprised me given that he's so young. If I think about him compared to Mondesi, he is never going to steal the 50 bases that Mondesi is going to steal. He'll steal half that, we'll say, maybe a little less. He's going to put up, I think, decent averages. And I think if he can prove that he's a solid on base guy, he's going to end up hitting near the top of the lineup and scoring a lot of runs. And so now all of a sudden I'm getting a shortstop late in the draft who I can keep for a long time who can put up decent average, a decent number of runs and get me 25 stolen bases. Like that's a pretty good place to be on top of that. And maybe this is a little bit of my, my Cleveland homerism stepping out here, but you look at what Jimenez is coming in with. It's like a solid back guy, not a lot of power, gets the bat on the ball, doesn't strike out a ton. And it's like, okay, well Cleveland brought up Francisco Lindor and everyone said glove first going to hit, but not a ton. They brought up Jose Ramirez, and people didn't even talk about Jose Ramirez when they brought him up, but I was excited about him as a glove first, going to hit a bit, not going to have a ton of power kind of guy. And both of those guys have turned into something real different than that. I don't know if that's just those two guys are super talented or if there's something Cleveland is able to do to unlock that kind of power with those kinds of players. If it's the latter, <laughs> then Jimenez seems to be next in line. And you add in the fact that, that Cleveland is loaded with middle infield prospects, yet in the trade still prioritize this guy there's something they really like there and so this is sort of just a bet on they really like him they were very excited about him enough to bury some of their other prospects to to bring him in let's see what he can do and if he's as good as i think the indians think he is then i'm going to be able to stash him for a nice long time for a nice low cost awesome yeah jimenez was one of the players i was going to ask you about next just so the folks at home know, you know, I, I sort of agree with Chad's assessment. I, I like being conservative with stolen bases, especially when a player goes to a new team. You don't know how much he's actually going to run. But in just 132 plate appearances last year, he had eight stolen bases and only one caught stealing. So I'll take those ratios, especially for a category that's so hard to get, particularly in a rotisserie league. But that should wrap us up for Chad's team. We're going to keep this thing moving here. We're on to Jason W's team, who started off his draft with Mookie in a pair of aces, I thought I thought Jason had a pretty solid draft. I mean, there were there were a couple of picks in there that were definitely on the interesting side. Kind of break it down. I mean, he took DJ LeMahieu over Glaber Torres in a keeper league, which I found interesting, especially since Glaber also has that second base eligibility. I really liked, obviously, the Tanner Houck pick because you know how much I love Tanner Houck. But it was otherwise a very youth-heavy draft. And in just a 10-keeper, Chad, assuming things go mostly as expected, are you going to keep Luciano in that position because he took Marco Luciano with his very last pick where there were definitely prospects available who if you wanted to go prospect or closer to the major leagues Luciano is having an absolutely brutal spring training I think he's still 19 years old it just it I, I get it he's a top prospect certainly for fantasy it just felt like I don't know an unnecessary pick but I don't mean to rake him over the coals for his last round pick in this mock draft I was just curious your thoughts on 
going so youth heavy in, a, in a, just a 12 team keeper. Yeah, you know, I don't hate the Luciano pick if only because it's his 23rd round pick. And like, none of us are really expecting our 23rd round picks to be on our team next year, right? You're hoping. And, and the upside here with Luciano is he puts the spring behind him. He starts to hit at the alternate site. They get aggressive with him and he gets into the high minors pretty quickly. And by the end of this season, we're looking at him the way we look at Wander Franco right now. If you could stash Wander Franco right now with a 23rd round pick and a 10 player keeper, 10 or 12 team, 10 player keeper, you'd be very happy to have a 23rd round Wander Franco right now. The risk is he's using up that bench spot all this season and probably half of next season, if not more. So I think the important thing for him is don't throw good money after bad. If he starts to struggle or it becomes clear that they're going to be conservative with him and his ETA is late next year, not early next year, move on and move on quickly and use that bench spot for another prospect for someone else. I think part of the reason he did that is he felt like he got a little bit stuck at shortstop. I talked to Jason a bit on Slack and he was saying that he was unhappy with his Will Smith pick. He took Will Smith, catcher Will Smith, in the seventh. Uh, it was a little early for Smith. I also get it because Smith is really good and really young. And I think you could argue he's the number two catcher already, but he's certainly got a future as the number one catcher someday from an offensive perspective. On the other hand, the Dodgers are saying he's going to get 90 games, which doesn't quite do it for me. But he took Smith there and passed on an opportunity to potentially add one of the last remaining good best top tier, I don't know how you call it, shortstops. Javier Baez went a few picks later. Carlos Correa actually went a couple rounds later. But by the time he ended up getting around to taking a shortstop, he took Dansby Swanson, who is fine, but he ended up as the last team to take a shortstop. And I I think he paid for that a little bit. After Smith in the seventh, he went with Mike Soroka in the eighth and James Kurinchak in the ninth. And I just think there were opportunities there. He could have taken... Baez instead of Smith. He could have taken Correa instead of Soroka or Karinchak. I think had he not taken Smith, he could have taken his choice of those shortstops, still probably gotten Soroka and Karinchak. And in the 10th, all the other catchers were still on the board. So instead of taking Swanson, Smith probably would have gone somewhere in there, but he could have had any other catcher he wanted, or he could have done what a lot of us did and waited. And like, are you really that happy with Will Smith in the seventh if you could have had Wilson Contreras? Like, Wilson Contreras went in the 15th. So he could have reached for Wilson Contreras in the 13th easily, and I think that would have been a better place for him to be instead of having Smith and Dansby Swanson as a shortstop. But other than that, he did go youth-heavy. I really like that those two aces in the second and third, he took Giolito and Flaherty, who are two of the younger guys you could grab there. Like, instead of going with Darvish or, or Bauer, who I think is a little bit more risky... He took those younger guys. He didn't go with Kershaw or Scherzer in that that third round pick. So I really liked the route he went there and, and taking younger aces. Like I might have gone Flaherty. I, I might have gone Gallon over Flaherty. I might have gone Aaron Nola over Giolito. Those those guys all went back to back. He took Giolito. I took Nola next. He took Flaherty. The guy that we're going to talk about next went Gallon with the next pick. But those are like just minor personal differences, right? I, I really like those picks. I think he's got two aces that he will be able to keep at least one of them. Like Flaherty next year for a third should be a nice keeper for him. And there's a possibility Giolito in the second's a nice keeper for him too. You get into weird things now where, especially in those early rounds, 
where you pick, which round you pick a guy really matters in these leagues and where you draft within a round really matters in these leagues. Right. So like I'm looking at your team where you're picking it at first and then at the turn after that, your odd round picks are guys you're taking at the very top of their rounds. And so because like you said before, you, you made a point of taking the guy you were more interested in keeping second every time you picked at the turn, because all of a sudden you're taking them around later. Those guys are more likely to turn into keepers than the guys you took a pick earlier. With a guy like Giolito, the question of whether or not you keep him for a second round pick next year probably comes down to what pick you have. If he has a great year and he's picking at the top of the second round, he's going to pass on Giolito because you'd rather have that 13th pick than Giolito. If he has a terrible year and he has the first pick next year and so he's picking 24th, then you keep Giolito. Flaherty, because those rounds are opposite, they'll be opposite from each other, right? So he's either going to be giving up a early second to give up to keep Giolito, which he won't want to do. But in that case, it's a late third and he'll be thrilled to keep Flaherty for a late third or it'll be flipped and he'll be happy to keep Giolito and maybe less happy to keep Flaherty. Either way, he gets to keep one of those guys, which is a really nice place to be. It really is an, an interesting draft because, you know, I said it was a youth heavy draft and it really wasn't. It, it was towards the end. But, you know, you acknowledged his two aces there who I love. And I like those pick two. I, I, I think I do prefer Giolito over Nola. And I would probably actually take Flaherty over Gallon. But that, again, that, that's kind of nitpicking. But his, his hitting is kind of filled with veterans, right? Like Mookie, DJ LeMahieu, Ozuna, Suarez. He even got Justin Turner, I thought, pretty late. It's a very veteran-heavy hitting. And then the, the pitching after Jack Flaherty gets super young. So in a way, it's almost like he, he's setting himself up to compete this year. But to also have sort of like what I was trying to do in, in with my late picks some potential interesting low cost pitching keepers later in the draft. I guess it was, it was really just Luciano knowing how he's doing this spring that, that stood out to me. But again, with your last pick, I mean, chances are, like you said, right off the top, Chad, almost all of our last round picks are probably going to be dropped at some point this season. It's not, it is a mock draft, but if we played this out at dropped at some point this season, because it's not that deep of a league, but I guess if Luciano all of a sudden does, you know, go on this wander Franco, path and he does he is able to keep him on his roster i would i would keep him i agree well i think he, he did something with that last pick that i also did which is like i said he he you know he took dansby swanson as a shortstop so now he's got an upside shortstop and if luciano moves fast and if swanson struggles i did that with andres jimenez versus Alberto mondesi i also did it with my last round pick with evan white my first baseman on my team right now is going to be, I, I guess, Dominic Smith, who I'm very happy with. I also have Trey Mancini, who has first base eligibility. I also have Alec Bohm, who has first base eligibility. But then I used my last pick on Evan White. And I did that because if Evan White breaks out and breaks out quickly, he becomes my first baseman. He pushes those other guys to the outfield, which is where I'd rather be using them. And he strengthens my whole team and gives me a long-term first baseman, which I lack right now. And if he doesn't, like Luciano, I can cut him loose and go find somebody else. So I, I, I liked it from that perspective. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So moving on to Estrella, he went Yellick over Trout, which which I found interesting. I mean, granted, it's a keeper. Yellick's a little bit younger. Trout says he's figured out his swing. I don't know if you heard that, Chad, but uh... he did say that. It's the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like someone someone should have just stopped him and been like, Mike, <laughs> you, you don't get to say that. Like, there's a bunch of young guys around here who, if they're like, oh, I figured it out, I got this thing going on. Like, I, I talk about this a lot, but Dominic Smith said that a couple <laughs> years ago. I, I spent a bunch of time in the offseason. I looked at it, I've got it figured out now. But Dominic Smith had been terrible. If Mike Trout figured out his swing, 
like, what are the rest of us doing here? Like, <laughs> it's terrible. Well, I also I heard that Steph Curry figured out how to shoot the three as well. He he just figured out how nice. to do that. So all of a sudden, That's yeah, good. yeah, big changes in the sports these days. But no, I mean, I actually like Yellick in a rotisserie league for the speed. You know, Trout still has the speed. I think people forget that. You look at his sprint speeds; he's still fast. He just doesn't steal bases. But Yellick probably more likely to run. So in a rotisserie league, I won't ignore the stolen bases. I'm actually I'm, I'm perfectly fine with Christian Yellick over Trout in this format. He was a little early on JT Real Muto for me. You know, we've talked about keepers in the past. Well, obviously we've talked about keepers in the past. But we've talked about JT Real Muto in the past and sort of my thoughts on catchers turning 30. I think he could be great this year. You know, Australia probably looking to contend this year, obviously. So it's not it's not a terrible pick. I just thought it was a little bit of a reach. You know I love Nick Senzel. I'm looking right now to see which round he Yeah, so he got Nick Senzel in the 16th round of a keeper. Man, are people forgetting about Nick Senzel. Will Smith, kind of early relative to ADP, but if he does get that job, I'm, I'm very okay with Will Smith as well. And he did handcuff him nicely with Chris Martin, which I think is important. I wasn't able to do that in one of my NFBC leagues. Somebody else took Chris Martin, and now I'm kind of sweating it out, hoping that Will Smith ultimately gets the job. But in rotisserie league, I don't like to punt anything, Chad. And I'm, I'm not saying at all that Estrella punted saves. I'm actually kind of saying the opposite. He went Iglesias and he went Will Smith. And I kind of want to save this conversation, I guess, a little bit for when we talk about John's team. But we've got two of his first 12 picks towards relievers. One of them is kind of iffy if he has the job or not. We can table the RP discussion if you want for when we talk about John's team, because it's certainly going to be the theme of, of that conversation. But I started to to realize it a little bit here. I think up until this point in the draft, Estrella was the one who, the only one who had two relievers through the first 12 rounds. So it is rotisserie. I don't like to punt any categories. I did not have a single reliever at this point, and my relievers are trash. I ended up with Craig Kimbrell and Rafael Montero. So I'm just curious your thoughts, Chad. You ended up with just Devin Williams to this point, so I figured maybe Chad's got a different strategy in mind than Estrella did. Yeah, when I look at Estrella's draft, I think the thing that stands out for me in a keeper draft with relievers is that relievers end up generally having limited keeper value there just aren't that like there's so much churn at the position you have to pay such a high price for them that inevitably when i look at a closer as a keeper i'm always like man i have to give up a seventh round pick for this guy do i really want to do that they're look at all the great bats i could get in the seventh round and the answer is like yeah you got to give up that seventh round pick because the closer is going to go that early i just find that i end up I have a hard time keeping them. Part of that's my strategy. I tend to, you know, take closers late and they are cheap and they're not very good and they don't stick around. But I sort of, so I sort of get it from the perspective of like the two closers he took that early. He took Rizal Iglesias in the ninth, who's not particularly young. He took Will Smith in the 12th, who, like you said, he handcuffed him with Martin later. I actually think the best case scenario for him is that Martin wins and keeps that job because Martin is a 22nd is a stash. Will Smith in the 12th, I don't think is. Iglesias, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, yes, you could wait on him, but I think if you're trying to win, <laughs> there's no real reason to wait on him because he's valuable now and his keeper value is going to be minimal anyways just because he's a closer and keepers ha closers have minimal keeper value. So I was... I was fine with it. Talked to him a little bit about his team as well. He made a point of telling me that he he struggles with average. He finds that when he drafts, he has this hard time with average. And so he made a point in this draft, and he did it in the sixth and seventh. He took Tim Anderson and Key Brian Hayes, who both should put up pretty decent averages. I really like that 
play. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's similar to what I did with stolen bases, right? Take an area where you know you struggle, solve that problem early, or at least give give yourself some baseline to solve that problem early. He also said he wishes he had picked more sort of flyer pitchers. He took Tristan McKenzie in the 13th, which is a little early for McKenzie, but not crazy. But then his late pitchers, you know, Alex Reyes is, is I think, an interesting player for this year as a bulk reliever, but who knows what his future is. Andrew Haney is not particularly exciting. He has some good upside in his early pitchers, right? Zach Gallen for a third, Tyler Glass now for a fourth. Denelson Lamette in the eighth, assuming he's healthy, is going to return great value for him next year. I really like Musgrove in the 10th, but I think he's right that he could have stood to have taken... I don't know, a Matt Manning, a Tarek Skubal, some of those guys we talked about before late in the draft just to give himself a little bit of pitching upside for the future. Instead, he sort of waited to get his bench bats, and he ended up with some interesting bench bats in Brandon Nimmo, AJ Pollock, and Rymel Tapia at the end, uh, as well as Ty France in the 17th. I really like that pick. But I think he could have I think he could have flipped that and gotten himself, instead of those two relievers, he could have gotten himself one or two more solid bats and then picked up a, a little bit more upside in his pitching later. But it's it's hard to say. I think that's a fair way to look at it. I mean, this is clearly a team that's built to win now. And if you're going to build to win now, like he didn't, Australia didn't take any of these flyer Luciano or in my case, AJ Puck, any of these like, let's go years down the road, guys. I mean, I guess you could make the case that Tristan McKenzie qualifies, but I think McKenzie's, and you'd know better than I would, Chad, going to be in the rotation at some point this year as a fixture and and he showed the upside before. So I like the idea of drafting for now and still getting yourself enough youth to have decent keepers going forward. And I love the key Brian Hayes pick. I think Hayes is awesome. Seeing him go ahead of Brandon Lau and, or is it low or Lau? I always get this wrong. It's Nate Lau and Brandon Lowe. No, that's I think that's right, but I'm not actually sure. Yeah. Cause I know it, but then when I try to think about it, I get it wrong. Anyway, whatever. Brandon, the second baseman for the Rays, seeing Brian Hayes go ahead of him is just is just music to me. That's beautiful because I I'm I'm kind of low on on Lau, but that's that's besides the point. I really like Brian Hayes. I thought that was a strong pick. So I didn't mean to bash him with the reliever pick, pitcher picks, and I don't even think they're bad picks. I think Will Smith has gone too late in drafts. I just it's it's interesting in a in a situation like this. But I guess if you are committing to winning now, which taking JT Real Muto in the fifth round is definitely committing to winning now. I think that's a that's a perfectly fine way to set yourself up for for saves. Kind of like your approach with steals, right? Just bang it out early. That way you don't have to worry about it. Totally. I think that makes total sense. So next we go on to Michael's team. Ended up going Trout. Can't really argue with that after he fell to him after Christian Yellick. I think he is our 2022 champion. Absolutely. He was very early on Wander Franco and Jared Kalenic. So early that like if Wander Franco doesn't get called up this year, then I I don't I don't even know if he keeps him. At that much of a price tag, he took Wander Franco in the fourth round. So if Franco ends up only like playing in September or something, and he, I don't know, hits 270 with two homers and three steals, like I, I, that's a that's a huge price tag. But let's him. let's even say Franco, and I, I'm going to go a step further and say, like, I don't think Franco's a keeper. Yeah. Is there a possibility he has a, like, Trevor Story, Trey Turner type season big breakout and all of a sudden becomes a late first, early second round pick. Maybe more realistically is something like a Bo Bichette type season, who is already a sort of late third round ish pick. At least in this league, he went late third. And then I look at the other fourth round shortstops in this league. It's like, 
do I really believe that next year Wander Franco is going to be as valuable or more valuable than Glaber Torres or Corey Seager? I don't know. And then you've got Xander Bogarts in the fifth. Tim Anderson's going in the sixth. I'm a, I'd be a little worried that he jumps so early on Franco that he's not going to be a keeper, even if he comes up and is good, right? He could come up and be great, right? There is a, there is a possibility he just absolutely sets the world on fire. That could happen. I think it is unlikely. I think the more likely outcome is that he comes up, he is a good, solid player, and he's a perfectly fine fourth to sixth round pick. Maybe that's enough to keep him, but I, I think there's a lot of risk. I like that he didn't want to wait to go get his young guys. Totally get why he did that. I just think he should have waited a little longer. Like I think in that fourth round, instead of taking Franco, even if he wants to go young, take Jordan Alvarez, who I took a little bit later. Like take him in the fourth, take Glaber Torres in the fourth, take Devers if you believe in the Devers breakout potential. And I bet he could have still gotten Franco in the fifth and Kalenic in the sixth instead of taking them in the fourth and fifth. Right. And I, I agree with all of that. And it's an interesting approach. And I'm kind of glad that he had this approach for the sake of conversation as well. But I said he's going to be our 2022 champion, obviously not 2021 with all these guys who aren't going to be up until at best halfway through the season. But 2022, because of that run where he got Sale, Severino and Syndergaard, three guys who have all had shown the potential, not just the potential, they've all been fantasy aces before. You could certainly argue Syndergaard's last couple years before his Tommy John surgery wasn't quite himself. He's still very good. So having all three of those guys at those values, I mean, arguably they could, they could be three aces and you're getting them for an 11th, 12th and 13th round pick. I thought was awesome. The one thing that stood out to me is that you've got this draft that's like really just youth heavy. Get the youth, get the youth. This is clearly a long-term league. And then he uses his last two picks on Emmanuel Classe, who, you know, I guess he could be a value if he does get the job in Cleveland and becomes a strong closer. And then his last one on Anthony Bass. So I know it sounds ridiculous. Like, why am I bashing these last round picks? But a lot of this comes down to strategy. And if your your strategy is long-term, well, the if you can get somebody who's going to be a value in the 23rd round and all you have to give up is a 23rd round pick to keep them, well, all of a sudden the last round means a lot more than it did before. So I, if I was Michael here, I would have completely said forget about relief pitcher and continue to take some young arms or, or, or bats, but I think he had plenty of those to this point. But I would have been taking a little bit more of potential. Like Spencer Howard went with the next pick after Anthony Bass. And with this situation in Michael's team with this youth approach, I would have rather him or even a few picks later, Logan Gilbert. So again, it, it's kind of cheap shots. It's low, like like criticizing the last round pick. But again, it is approach. And I thought he had an interesting, consistent, thoughtful approach. Framber Valdez, I see there too, kind of fits in with Syndergaard, Severino, Sale, not in terms of upside, but in terms of, you know, 2022 having a really solid rotation. I just didn't get those last two picks, but I like the approach. I like class A because at least there's there's upside there. Bass there really isn't. However, I'm looking now in the chat window on the couch manager site and realizing that the last three comments in the chat <laughs> are all from this manager. And he says, crap, pretend I picked Yoelki Cespedes there. Draft <laughs> is ruined. So I don't think he meant to take Bass. I'm not sure how he ended up with Bass. I think he I don't know what it was, but I think he wanted Yoelki Cespedes, who actually then fits that strategy really well. The White Sox have talked about him potentially being in right field as soon as next season. Let, let maybe give him the benefit of the doubt on that and assume that's what he meant to do. But I agree with you. I think looking at that, it was like, okay, I sort of get class A. I, I can see the idea of like, if you believe he's going to be the closer in Cleveland, 
then you get him now, you get him really cheap, and he could be a good, cheap, long-term closer. Bass made no sense. Um, I sort of thought he took him. Mike is, he used to live in Miami, so he's sort of a, he is a a White Sox fan, but he is somewhat of a Marlins, there is other team, we'll say. Uh, And so I thought maybe that was just a, he just wanted Bass, but it looks like he just wanted Cespedes because he's a White Sox fan, not really a Marlins fan, so. I feel bad. I should have looked at this this shady website. I just noticed. Box, so. I, I just noticed. So well, that does change things. Then I like the approach. The, Michael is our, our if this league existed, our twenty twenty two champion. I'm, I'm actually kind of convinced of that. We can move forward to my buddy Chris. So I do another podcast with Chris, the Pitch Count Podcast. We're going to be recording right after this. And Chris had an interesting draft where it was like there were reaches for youth. And then it was, I'm going to stick with the Stone Cold veteran. I think Chris kind of took this draft as a, as a pick by pick. What is the best value weighing long-term versus short-term? And it kind of ended up in an interesting product here. But when embracing the old guys, I'm not sure the prospects are worth it in that situation. And that, that particularly relates to some of his later round picks. I mean, I just brought up how Spencer Howard could have been a good pick for Michael. I don't think it really is for Chris here. And again, I'm not even going to focus on Spencer Howard because I'm tired of talking about last round picks, but guys like Grayson Rodriguez, I don't, you know, he reached for Ha Young Kim. He, he had a very questionable Jonathan VR pick, which I'm just going to assume was a mistake. And he reached for Sixto Sanchez. So when you start off your draft with a veteran like DeGrom, and then you have Scherzer, Springer, these guys who are over 30, and then you mix them with the super young guys, it could work out really well where you're always kind of relevant. But I think at some point you, you got to kind of teeter in one direction or the other where you may always be relevant, but you'll never have enough for a championship. Chris may have struck that balance, particularly if a few of these things go his way. If, if VR finds himself with some playing time and ends up stealing 30 bases, if Haas Young Kim fight off Jake Cronenworth. So there's definitely opportunity here. I just thought it was an interesting strategy, kind of going pick by pick. Do I want to go youth or do I want to win right now i sort of got the sense that like you said he went pick by pick and that he kept just sort of taking the value that was there and so like i looked at the beginning of his draft and picking seventh Degrom is there you take Degrom, fine no issue with that then he went vlad in the second which is a little early for vlad but you get the upside and fine so he went upside there then you get scherzer who seems like a pretty good value where he got him in the third he's going a few picks later than he normally would And then after that, there's a lot of, I think you're right, where he just was like, oh, this guy is sort of the best guy available. And I think in some cases, he, it looks to me like he couldn't talk himself into a strategy and instead just went with the the guy who was at the top of his draft board, which I totally get. And, And as a result, he has this run where he got Nelson Cruz in the 11th, Charlie Blackman in the 12th. Then he jumped in for Kassian Kim. Then he got Kenley Jansen in the 14th. He has Monty Grandal in the 15th. Like four of those five, Kim being the exception, are our old guy value, right? Veterans who fall in this kind of draft. And it's there is a there is an absolute strategy in any keeper draft, in any dynasty draft, and it happens in auto new leagues where old guys are values because everybody's trying to think about the future at the same time they're thinking about the present. And I thought he did a really nice job grabbing that old guy value. But it doesn't look to me like a, a strategy of, I'm just going to take all the old guys who fall two rounds and have a great team. It was every given pick, okay, Vlad's a little bit of a reach here, but I'm really excited about him. Okay, Blackman should have gone much earlier. I'll just take him here. If those young guys all break out, or a couple of them break out, like there, there's, a solid, there's a solid enough veteran base to do some damage this year. 
and maybe that was the strategy, right? Maybe it was like get a solid enough veteran base that the, that I only reach for the young guys I really want to reach for. Yeah, that would, and I think that would be a smart approach. I think I think he did do a strong job there. The Grayson Rodriguez picks and the Haas Young Kim, Jonathan VR, and Grayson Rodriguez picks just kind of stick out to me as I don't know. But in a league that's just twelve teams and there's only twenty three man rosters. I don't think you have to completely commit to a long-term or a short-term strategy. I think you can figure that out as the season goes along. I mean, if you look at some of the players that weren't even drafted, Donaldson, Eric Hosmer, these are good players that weren't even drafted. So Chris could definitely, as the season progresses, fully commit to, all right, it's not working out this year. Let's go with the youth. I'm really going to embrace this Haseon Kim, this Grayson Rodriguez pick. Or say, you know what, it's going well, ditch those two guys if the playing time isn't there for for Kim and Rodriguez looks like he's a year away and just commit to winning this year. So I I think he's going to be able to adapt pretty well. Next up, we have Pass the Popcorn, which was, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to look up the name. That was Seth. That was Seth. So I I think Seth had a strong draft, but I'm going to start with, I think Dustin May is very overrated. So when I saw Dustin May, so in the 11th round, Dustin May went, I, I'm not a big Dustin May guy. I actually like Lance McCullers a little bit more, well, a lot more than, than Dustin May. So I, I'm not going to harp on that pick. It's just that one really stood out to me. I don't. There's not a whole lot of swing and miss there. With that said, this was, this was a strong draft. The prospects are all either on the cusp or have already debuted. So it's not like Seth is going to be waiting a while for these guys like some of these other people. I mean, Jason Dominguez went in this draft. He's, he, by the, I'm going to be retired by the time that guy starts playing in the major leagues. Seth doesn't have to worry about that. Not huge rosters, not a deep league like we just said for Chris. So a little hesitant on the prospects front, but I like this approach. I kind of had the same approach with like Mountcastle, Kirilov, Fawn, guys who are like right there. How did we factor in prospects in our draft process? And how do you think Seth did here? I think Seth did it right. I, I think we have to draw a line between prospects and young guys who are expected to debut on opening day or, or to be on the opening day roster, right? So like Lux is going to be on the opening day roster. Is he really a prospect? Yes, technically, but he's getting drafted and redraft because of that. The guys he went with who are not necessarily going to be there on opening day, Adele and Mize and Varsho, these are all guys he's going to get a good long look at this year. And so he's going to know by the end of the season, are these guys worth it or not? And I think that's the important thing with prospects in a keeper. And it's where keeper really differs from dynasty or in some cases even from auto new, especially when you have a 23 man roster, right? So in an auto new league, you have a 40 man roster. If you want to take a $1 Jason Dominguez in an auto new league and stash him at the end of your roster for the next couple of years, it's not what I would do, but I get it. In this draft, you take a guy like that, or even Grayson Rodriguez, who we just talked about a moment ago on Chris's team. Are you really giving up a bench spot for that long? Whereas I look at, at what Seth did and Adele, I don't think it's going to be that long before he comes up. Varsho might break camp with the team. If he doesn't, it won't be that long. Mize will probably be up by midseason. And so I look at that and it's like, not only is he going to get a good long look at these guys from a keeper perspective, but he won't be giving up those bench spots for forever. And that's that makes a big difference to me. And I think three of his last four picks, I could see all being keepers for him next year. Christian Javier, who his stuff doesn't really suggest that he should be this good, but he continues to be this good, be it in the minor leagues or last year for Houston. I like Varsho, and and you and I both like Hampson. I think he had a great draft. I was cool with this one. Amir Garrett, especially. I don't know if you saw, he made his debut the other day after that injury. 
you know, he was dealing with some some forearm issue, which definitely raised some concerns. He was nasty, struck out the side, I believe. So this was a particularly strong draft. Yeah, I think so, too. And I also one of the things I really liked about this is getting Turner where he did. So you got Trey Turner eighth and then Freddie Freeman fell him in the second, fell a little bit to him in the second. And I think what's interesting here is. Again, we talked about this before with, I'm trying to remember who it was we were talking about. Oh, with, with Giolito and Flaherty on Jason's team. If this season doesn't go well for him and he ends up picking near the top, he's going to be able to keep Freddie Freeman for a late second round pick, which will be great value. If he ends up having a really good year and he ends up picking near the bottom, he'll be able to keep Trey Turner with a late first round pick, which will be great value for him. And there is a possibility that he has a really good year as a team. Freddie Freeman has a really good year. And keeping Turner as a late first and Freeman as an early second is worth it. Yeah, I I agree. And I I look at his first eight rounds, and I just think it went just completely according to plan. He's got stolen bases covered with Grisham and Turner. He's got a lot of power between Freeman, Arenado, Hira, and Voight. Hira obviously going to chip in some stolen bases as well. And he has two starting pitchers in the bag with with one that I really like in Luis Castillo. Obviously, the second one, Zach Plesak, is definitely someone who is debatable this year, I guess, after last year, who his opponents were, how his season went. But nevertheless, to have two starting pitchers in the bag after those first eight with such strong hitting, I really like. But anyway, we can continue to praise Seth's draft forever, but we do need to keep this going. So we've got Matt P up next. Matt P, I loved the Clevenger grab. I think that's a, that's an interesting look for this. His last two picks, Mike Clevenger and Logan Gilbert, I thought he ended this draft really well. I know I keep focusing on the end of the draft, but again, that's important. That's that's like a huge upside for next year if you only have to give up a 23rd round pick to keep these guys. So Chad, I kind of wanted to put you on the spot here. We got the Clevenger grab. Can you rank these guys for me in this format? So in a 10-keeper, 12-team league, I'm going to throw out six names, so it might be a little overwhelming. One of them is going to be a random prospect because I just want to see where he would fit in in this. All right. So we've got Mike Clevenger, Justin Verlander, Luis Severino, Chris Sale, Noah Syndergaard. So the five Tommy John guys, we definitely expect to see three of them this year. And I'm just going to throw in a, a top pitching prospect. It could be anybody. I'm going to throw out there Matt Manning. So for this format, assuming you could get these guys with a late round pick and you couldn't for three of those names, they went early as we went over earlier, but assuming you could, how do you? differentiate between those those six names the first thing for me is i'm always at least almost always playing for this year like i very rarely go into a draft thinking this isn't going to happen so i'm just going to completely play for the future and and because of that verlander and clevenger fall pretty far down the list for me just because you're not getting anything from them this year at all the other thing that matters in this format, because we don't have sort of minor league spots, is Manning or whether it was Manning or Logan Gilbert or whoever else, they're just using up a bench spot, right? They're just taking up space in your team. And so they're actively, until they're actively helping you, they're actively hurting you. Whereas the Tommy John guys get to go into the IL because we do have, we, we did assume IL spots. And so they get to go into IL spots and you can replace them until they're ready to come back. That makes a big difference. The other thing that factors in for me in this particular example is if I'm going to take especially pitching prospects, I, I, I you have to balance upside and floor, but Manning is one who seems particularly risky to me. And because he seems particularly risky, I'm a little bit more worried about him, despite the fact that he might have more upside than some of the others, right? Like I think he might have more upside than Casey Mize or Tarek Skubal, but I'm a little bit more confident in Mize or Skubal returning some value. So 
having said all that, I would end up prioritizing the three Tommy John guys who are coming back this year first. I'm more interested in Sale, Sevi, and Thor in that order than I am in in the others. Severino over Thor is tough for me. Sale, I think, is the best of those pitchers. And I think if he comes back healthy, he is the best of them, and that's why he's first. Severino versus Thor. There's just been such good reports in Severino recently about, you know, he's throwing breaking stuff already. He might be back sooner than we thought. Like, that really factors in, and so that's bumping him over Thor for me, but it's it's a tough call. After that, then I get in this tough choice of, like, do I take the prospects or the guys who are going to give me no value this year? I think I would probably I'm going back and forth in this. Originally I thought it would be Manning and then the two guys who are done for the year uh, with Clevenger over Verlander, just because of age. Like I think Verlander might come back and have aged and not be very good, or he might come back and give you one good year and then retire. But I sort of now think I might go Clevenger over Manning because I'm not sure what you're going to get out of Manning this year anyways. And so then I'm looking at, okay, who am I going to get more from next year? And I think the answer has to be Clevenger. Like you have to, I, I'm more confident in Clevenger being a legit ace for my team next year than I am in Manning being a legit ace for my team next year. And then Verlander being last because I just don't know about the long term with him. Awesome. That's, that's perfect. That's what I'm looking for. I think that's what a lot of folks are looking for. How do we value these guys? I pretty much agree with everything Chad just got out there. Justin Verlander seems absolutely determined to come back. And age has clearly not been a factor for him up until this point in his career. But with a keeper league this shallow and with how old he is, I, I, I'm, I'm very concerned there. With that said, there is something to be said for Clevenger's injury history, even outside of the Tommy John. You know, in this situation for this particular owner, he still ended up with Clevenger and Logan Gilbert. We can just consider him our Matt Manning equivalent, not to, not to compare the two, but our, our top pitching prospect, right? So he was able to get both. So it doesn't matter as much for him. But that does still play a factor for me a little bit. It's like Clevenger, it's not like he just got Tommy John out of nowhere. He got Tommy John after already suffering several serious injuries, a back one in, in 2019. I think he had something going on with his midsection between that and the Tommy John as well. So there's there's definitely some injury concern there even outside of the Tommy John. But with that said, we have seen him actually be an ace at the major league level, whereas obviously we have not seen this with X prospect. So well done. I, I would agree with that. Next up, we have John, who's actually my brother. I thought he was having a great draft. And I think he actually had a really solid draft despite this. But for round six, seven, and eight, he took Josh Hader, Edwin Diaz, and then Araldis Chapman. Look, I've seen some NFBC draft boards on Twitter, obviously all offseason, everybody has, and I've seen the back-to-back closer picks. And I don't always disagree with like in a rotisserie league i think that can be pretty strong even in a head-to-head weekly league where you know if if hater and diaz if those are your two they could easily combine a week where they pitch seven innings give up zero earned runs get six saves and have 16 strikeouts and that's basically the equivalent of having an ace for certain weeks that aside using a third straight pick on a closer in a rotisserie league you don't need to win saves by 30 you need to win them by one it's the same, you get the same amount of points for your rotisserie score, whether you come in first and saves by one or first and saves by 30. And I think using that third straight, straight consecutive pick on a relief pitcher 
was ill-advised. Uh, there were bats available like Nick Castellanos, Dominic Smith. Those were the two guys that we ended up with. There was a pitcher run there, which means there were a lot of pitchers that starting pitchers that went between that Araldus Chapman pick and his next pick, which was Matt Chapman. So who knows? Maybe he would have gone starting pitching if one of those guys fell. But you also risk that in a in, you know any draft where you make a pick of going after the same position for the third time in a row. And then you miss out on one of the more shallow positions, in this case, starting pitcher. My final point about this, and, I, and I'll let you you talk about it, Chad, is he took his third reliever before he took his third hitter. And it just like philosophically, I cannot get behind that strategy. But in the very end, you put a bow on this draft. I think he salvaged it pretty well and, and had a solid draft. Yeah, I, I think you know, those three relievers, the thing I imagine happened, and I'm, I'm just guessing, right? I'm, I'm thinking about how, how this could happen to me, is I imagine he was sitting there at, where was it? In the, in the sixth round, he took Hader as the first reliever off the board. And my guess is he was sitting there thinking, man, it'd be nice to get two closers, took Hader as his first. Hendricks went later that round, comes back in the seventh. And I imagine he's sitting there thinking, Chapman or Diaz? Chapman or Diaz? Who is who do I have as the third closer here? Who do I like better? He picks Diaz. And then a few picks later, Chapman is still there. I get myself into this mindset all the time where it's like, I want one of these two guys. And then I take the one I like better. And the second one is still there when it comes back to me. And it's like, oh man, well, I can't believe that guy fell to me. Now, if it's two bats and it's like, I'm debating between a third baseman and an outfielder, then you take them both and it's great. And it works out really well for you. If they're both the same position, though, it's a little bit harder, especially with relief pitcher. What I could see here is in a 12-teamer, there are 30 teams. There's going to be other teams with three closers. It would be awful to use those early two picks on relievers and still end up like fifth in saves because other teams have three not as good relievers. I think he could have solved that by taking, I, I don't know, like take Chris Martin late and see if he gets some saves, take Matt Barnes late and get the saves from him. Like, I think he could have done that without taking Chapman. There's trade possibilities here. The other thing to keep in mind is the three closers he did take, like he didn't take the closers who have risky other numbers. And so at the very least, he's going to put up some really great rate and strikeout numbers out of his relievers, which, which helps. So my last point on, on John, and I would agree with that, that's going to help his ratios, but Folks got to keep in mind that there's an innings pitch minimum for just about every rotisserie league. Now, we didn't get into that too much here, but let's say we had the 1,000 inning pitch minimum. Well, he's got Bieber, and that's great. There's there's 200 innings probably out of the way right there. Then there's Walker Bueller, who, yeah, he says he wants to be unleashed and that, that that's the plan. But really, with the Dodgers, we think Walker Bueller is going to be unleashed. I don't think this is the year for that coming off of last year. Corbin Burns. Never pitched that many innings before, or has, I should say, but it's been years since he has. Then we got the three closers. Mackenzie Gore, not going to pitch a lot of innings. Cranky, hopefully. Okay. I'll even give him Stroman, because Stroman was an absolute horse before he took all of last year off. Bottom line, he, he really didn't throw last year. And then Dane Dunning and Adrian Morion. So I, he's going to have to make moves in order to actually get anything out of those ratios from his closers. So like you're, you're still going to have to devote some starting, and it can be done. It's only a 12 team league with shallow rosters. So he can absolutely stream his way to meeting that minimum, but you can't just look at this pitching staff and say, Oh yeah, it's great. It's going to have a great ERA because no way 
as currently constructed, does that meet the, the 1,000 inning pitched minimum? I just, I, I'm a little bit higher on Bueller than most. I think Bueller th- made like, I think 30 starts it was two years ago. And so there's all this talk about the Dodgers. And yes, the Dodgers do play games and they make sure to keep their starting pitchers rested. But yeah, in, in 2019, Bueller made 30 starts and threw 182 innings. He only threw 36 innings last year. And so there is for sure a lot of risk that they're going to hold him back. But they've also shown a willingness to unleash him before. And it's basically been that when he's healthy, he's in the rotation. He is not one of the guys that they're like, oh, his you know fingernail is a little sore. Time for a quick IL trip so somebody else can can step in. They, they throw him out there when he's there. He's not going to get moved to the bullpen. I think if he's healthy, I think we're going to see them limit him as he may be limited to like five to six innings per start. But I bet he makes I bet he makes more than 25 starts and closer to 30. He certainly could. I mean, the, the reason I brought that up with Bueller isn't so much the, the Dodgeritis that they get accused of. It's more just they are a smart baseball team. They're obviously one of the smartest teams in baseball and working these pitchers back from, as you said, what is it? 32 innings. Less? He only threw, I think, a six inning game not including the playoffs, maybe like once or something like that. So no, I don't fear he's going to go to the bullpen. And if he's healthy, sure, he's going to go out there. But what you just said about just the the five to six inning starts in this format, maybe not that important, but that is one of the reasons why I'm a little bit more down on Bueller in redraft is that that hurts his value. If he really is just going like if, he, if they treat him like the Rays treated Blake Snell last year, that does hurt his value significantly, I'd argue. But you're right. In this case, if he does still get... 25 to 32 starts and, and ends up pitching, you know, 170 innings. That is certainly going to get John closer to that minimum. Next up, we had King 21, Jeff on Slack. So Jeff, I thought as well, had a pretty strong pitching staff. Well, it's an interesting pitching staff. I mean, we got Lozardo in the sixth and then it's, it's, it's kind of boring after that. But I know Chad, that you, you at least were a fan of some of these boring pitchers. And he took a bunch of late relievers who aren't closers which was a little weird, but could definitely help his ratios, certainly help him meet that innings pitch minimum, if that's a theme that we want to focus on. But do you think he waited too long for a starting pitcher? Because I really just, I don't know what to make of this pitching set. He did wait, but I think he waited. I guess I'll say this. I like to wait for starting pitching. And when I wait for starting pitching, he went out and got the guys I wait for. And so the risk of waiting for starting pitching, I think, is had he not gotten some of these guys, could have been in trouble. But like Kyle Hendricks, because he doesn't have the gaudy strikeout numbers, I think is always underrated. I think he's a much better pitcher than a lot of the guys. Like I'm looking here, he went in the ninth. Let's leave Carrasco out of it because of the the injury news. But like I would take Hendricks over Lance Lynn, who went in the eighth. I would take him over Soroka, who went in the eighth. I would take him over Jose Barrios, who went early in the eighth. So I, I think Hendricks is just perpetually underrated. And I think he was a really good pick for him there. And then he comes back with like Lance McCullers, who's been hurt, but has been very good when he's been healthy. Kevin Gaussman, who was excellent last year. And I think people are sort of sleeping on a bit. Marco Gonzalez, who I'm a big fan of. No, he went, there are mixed feelings on him, but he's sort of somewhat like Hendricks. Like he doesn't strike out a ton of guys, but he is a very, very good pitcher, and he consistently puts up good numbers. He goes deep into games, so he gets you a lot of innings. He sets himself up for a lot of wins because he's going deep into those games. I just like, like these are all the guys that, like, if I were going to be waiting, they're the guys I would wait on. I think he's going to be in a good position to rack up the innings he needs. He's, he's not going to win strikeouts. 
Like he's just not. And that's like when you lean on Hendricks as your number two and, and Marco as your number five, like they're just the strikeouts just aren't going to be there. But that's okay. You're going to get enough innings out of those guys that I think you can be sort of middle of the pack in strikeouts. You're not going to be at the bottom. I like it. I think on relievers, the advantage he has is because he waited on relievers and he didn't prioritize saves. He's got some guys who might be able to get saves, but are going to provide really great ratios in the meantime. And so I like that piece. I think the bigger question for him is, did he do, by by waiting on pitching, did he do enough with his offense? And I think he has some interesting picks there. Like I like Story and Bellinger as his start. I think Anthony Rendon is another guy who's perpetually underrated. And, you know, by the fifth round, he had gone Story, Bellinger, Rendon, Pete Alonso, and Randy Rosarena. That's a really solid offensive core. I like the route he went. There's a couple guys in there who steal some bases. Then he added Whit Merrifield for some more steals. Then he added Byron Buxton for some more steals later. I like what he did. I think Christian Pache in the, what, 16th round, 15th round, 15th round. Could be a nice upside play. Could add some more stolen bases. Ian Happ went in the 16th round, which I thought was crazy late. I, I think he made some really nice picks there and then was still able to get some offensive upside late with Pache, with Mitch Garver, who could easily return value if he goes back to being the guy he was in 2019. And, and Willie Castro in the last round has shown he can, like he had a lot of power last year in the regular season and he has been smoking the ball in the spring. So if he steps up and becomes, even if it's an empty power kind of play out of shortstop, Man, a 23rd round shortstop with empty power, I'll take it. So I'm, I'm with you. I I love his offense. I do. I did I wasn't a big fan. I'm I'm not with young Christian Pache. Even if even if he does okay, and there's there's limited upside to that bat. Where he's gonna be batting in that order, I'm not sure. The, the plate appearances and everything else. I'm not a big fan of the Pache pick. I think he could have done differently there. But with that said, this offense is awesome. He got Whit Merrifield in the seventh round. That has to be way past his as ADP and he's not the most attractive keeper option but for a seventh round pick in a 12 team league I think he's going to be a pretty solid keeper option next year and that's besides the point I mean we're, we're looking at a team that's looking to compete right now and I have a hard time finding a better way to start a draft than Story, Bellinger, Rendon, and Alonzo if you're going to abandon starting pitching and go you know for the innings eaters kind of safe guys later you have to start your draft of hitting well and he absolutely rush it we'll see how rosa reina does i'm just going to ignore him for now but those first four rounds awesome yeah and i look at merrifield by the way he went 83rd in this draft because adp is around 40th at nfbc kyle hendrick's another guy he got good value on his adp is around 82 he got him at 107 and then trevor rosenthal adp of 112 went 158 here so he got some good values that are going to provide like older guys who fell because they're older, because people wanted the younger, more exciting players. But those are all three stable guys that you can count on for good numbers this year. I like those. I like those picks a lot. Yeah, strong draft, strong draft. And that takes us to our last player. And that was Ian. He's a buddy of mine. I'm in many leagues with Ian. He had Jose Ramirez. I guess the, I don't know if the correct word is fall, but it feels like getting Jose Ramirez at the very last pick in the first round, it's, it just feels like he fell because he's so good he fell. at just about everything. For sure, yeah, he, fell. he fell. I mean, I, but you, I guess what I'm saying is you look at the 11 names in front of him and it's like, you can make a pretty compelling case, but I would rather have Jose Ramirez than Trevor Story, that's for sure. So seeing Jose Ramirez go that late was definitely interesting. I thought Ian had a pretty strong draft. With that said, you know, the Bobby Dalmack pick and the Jake Cronenworth picks felt like massive reaches i did love tommy edmund in the 23rd round and i'm 
I was hesitant to bring that up because it's another last round pick. But in a rotisserie league, especially to get those steals with your last pick, kind of a safe player in terms of volume, I really like that. But what did you think of Ian's draft? There were some reaches there, but overall, I thought it was pretty solid. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good too. I'll be honest, I don't, I don't know that I get the fascination with Edmund. Like, I understand. I mean, first of all, like he went the the last pick in this draft, right? So he went at two seventy six. It is a huge value versus ADP. His ADP is around one thirty. So I get that. He is an accumulator. He is a guy who who plays a lot and puts up decent enough numbers. He also strikes me as a guy who's not actually that good and could easily get replaced when the Cardinals are ready to replace him. And so I understand why he fell. I also understand why he took him there. And I've done the same thing where the only I've got I've got Edmund on one roster and it's a similar situation where he just fell so far that I was like, all right fine. I guess I'll take him. He qualifies at a bunch of positions, which really helps as a bench bat. So I, I'm totally fine with that. I, he's not a guy I'd be super excited about, but that, like you talked about the Cronenworth pick, he took Cronenworth in the 11th. Cronenworth is a guy to me who has a lot more upside. He's way more interesting to me as a long-term play. On the other hand, who knows what his role is going to be and what, what his situation is going to be on that team. And I did think he reached a bit for him. Cronenworth's been going around the 215th pick on NFBC. He went 132 here. And, and this isn't, I don't think this is a case where you're reaching because he's young and he's a keeper and it's worth reaching because you're going to get so much more value from him out of the future. We're still waiting to see what Cronenworth is, both in terms of his role and in terms of his talent. So I felt like that was a bit of a re- it definitely was a reach, and I think I would rather have Edmund than Cronenworth. I mean, in this format, especially given the difference in picks, and I'm sure when you consider the difference in picks, you feel the same way. Edmund's actually two years younger, and if you're telling me he's batting leadoff with 20 steal potential, he hasn't done it yet, but I think we'd all agree Tommy Edmund has at least 20 steal potential. Batting in front of RBI gods, Paul Goldschmidt, and more appropriately, Nolan Arenado. I don't. I actually don't think his playtime is at risk at all, and I don't even think that leadoff spot is really at any kind of risk. So if he's going to give me 150 games leading off for the Cardinals, steal 20 bags, and I got him in the 23rd round, I really like that. But it also it does bring into question the Cronenworth pick a little bit more. There's no way Ian could have saw he could get the value of Edmund that earlier in the draft. So hindsight is 2020, but it does make it stick out when you look at the draft as a whole. And Bobby Dahlback, Chad, any any thoughts there? We have Bobby Dahlback going in the 16th round here. It seemed a little early on Dahlback, but if you believe in Dahlback, then you're getting a good, cheap, long-term power source, I guess. I mean, if I look earlier in his draft, the thing that sort of stands out to me about the Dahlback pick is Jose Ramirez, Bryce Harper, Corey Seager, Jose Abreu, Giancarlo Stanton, Kyle Lewis. Like, his first five, six bats are all guys are counting on for power. And from that perspective, Dahlbeck feels a little redundant. It's like his upside doesn't seem that helpful to this team. Like there's other teams that I look at and I think, had they taken Dahlbeck in the, in the 16th round, I'd been like, okay, I get it. He also, he's picking up the turn there in the 16th, in the 15th into 16th. And he took Gary Sanchez and Bobby Dahlbeck. <laughs> it's like, uh, Ian, Ian likes his power bats. <laughs> I guess that's I guess that's what comes out of this. Imagine those two batting back to back in a real lineup. Oh my goodness, <laughs> the whiffs! They'd, they'd serve as a nice fan. There'd be a, There'd be a lot of solo player. home runs and a lot of strikeouts. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't hate it. Um, I, I'm just, as you know, I'm a pessimistic Boston fan, and I, 
I don't really like Bobby Dalek. I look at who went two picks later and Miguel Sano. And if that's the route you really want to go, I mean, they're the same thing. It's just Sano has proven it. So, and when I say proven it, I mean, he's, he's proven he can strike out an exorbitant rate and hit a thousand home runs. And I guess that's, that's what we're looking at with Dalbeck. Dalbeck has certainly has more upside. So in a keeper setting, oh, no, hold on. Well, fill it back. I don't know if Bobby Dalbeck has more upside than Miguel Sano. He probably does not, but he is younger. So it is, and it is keeper setting. So that is, uh, that's fine with me. So Chad, I think that that does it for this draft. Was there anything else that stood out? Anything else you want to throw out there? Putting a bow on this a little bit. Like we saw a lot of different strategies here, ranging from, you know, Mike taking a full on almost dynasty approach with, with Kalenic and Franco so early, which I think was a little extreme. We saw teams take a, I'm just going to take the best old guys available. And I don't really care if they're keepers approach, which I, I also think is a little extreme, but makes sense. And I think the important thing to remember in these keeper leagues is there are a lot of approaches you can take, a lot of approaches other teams can take. The advice I would give to anyone starting one of these drafts is in the first couple rounds, like the first two rounds, just draft for the best players you can get. The reality is your first and second round keepers, like your best case scenario is that your first and second round keepers are not that valuable as keepers right? You're, you're giving up a first or a second round pick to keep them anyways. And so draft just the best guys available. Don't over-index on finding a keeper instead of just getting the best guy you can get. And then look at what your league mates are doing. And if it's a draft where all of the young guys, all of the hype guys, all of the upside guys are getting picked, pivot and let those guys go and don't worry about it and go out and win that league by taking the best player on the board at every pick. If you are looking at this league and everyone's drafting almost like it's redraft. That's where I then know, okay, everyone's drafting like it's redraft. I'm going to zig where everyone's zagging. And then I'm going to start just pumping guys by a round or two, not by a lot, because you want to maintain that keeper value for the future, but just take guys who I think have upside a round or two early, keep doing that and build a team that's going to position me well for the future. I I think it's a, it's a format that is well suited to just not do what everyone else is doing. It's almost like the pitcher runs or the real closer runs or things like that. There's a tendency in these drafts to, for people to be like, oh man, everyone's taking all these young guys. If I want a young guy, I got to act now. Let everyone else do that and and do the opposite. Exactly. And you never know how this stuff's going to go down. So if you're like Chad and I, and you want to compete right away, and then you realize everybody's trying to compete right away and you kind of want to zig where they're zagging, well... That's fine, because if you load up on prospects, some of those teams that treated this like a redraft, they're going to be out of it at the trade deadline. If you can stay afloat, take some of those prospects that you drafted and and strengthen your team during the season. I think that's a perfectly fine strategy. So, Chad, we are definitely up against it, but we cannot have a podcast without the odd new question of the day. Can't miss it. Can't miss it. And Chad and I have an auction today. It's the one odd new league I am in, uh, obviously, with Chad. I'm very excited about that. And this question has nothing to do with that because we are in a point setting, but I was looking at the scoring settings for Ott New Classic, and it's something we talked about a long time ago in one of our first episodes. And there's a category that really sticks out to me, and that's home runs per nine innings. That's a tough stat. I mean, I feel like that's, unless it's Matthew Boyd or Robbie Ray, it's a pretty tough stat to predict. And there are a lot of great pitchers in baseball, Bauer, Kershaw, Cole, who if we just look at the last two seasons, we combine the last two seasons, 2020 and 2019, their home runs per nine are awful. They would be in the lower tier of pitchers in this category. So Chad, does that matter to you as much? Or is it just too hard of a stat to truly predict for these 
higher tier pitchers. And I guess given the seams on the baseball now, obviously play a factor and everything else. So do you just throw it out and kind of ignore it and take the best pitchers? Or are you thinking at points like, oh, I really want this pitcher, but uh, he gives up too many dongs. It's 25% of the pitching in four by four, right? So the pitching categories in four by four, ERA, whip, strikeouts, sort of like normal leagues. And then you've got this home run per nine. So it's 25% of the pitching. You got to do something with it. To give a sense of scale in in League One, the original Auto New League, where we play four by four, last year was a weird year because a short year. The winning team in home run per nine was 0.883. The losing team was 1.516. In 2019, a more typical year, it went from 1.175 to 1.428. So it's not a huge range, but to give you a sense of that, 1.18, which was the the winning team that year, the best home run per nine that year. Over the last couple of years, that's Bieber, Nola, Flaherty. It's also Adam Wainwright. 1.43 is John Lester, Mitch Keller, Trent Thornton, but it's also Zach Plesak. He was at 1.42. Chris Sale was 1.47. Carrasco and Verlander are 1.49. The guys that you mentioned, Cole and Bauer and Kershaw, if I look at pitchers with over 100 innings pitched over the last year and a half, two years, whatever you want to call it, since 2019, they are 63rd, 65th, and 67th out of 137. That's 63rd, 65th, and 67th worst. So they're either way, they're they're pretty much right in the middle there. Chad, is that out of qualified pitchers? Because I think what I was looking at on, on Fangrass is probably out of qualified. I started, started with qualified, pitchers. but there were only like 40 or 50 of them. So I expanded to anyone with 100 plus innings. So I looked at 100 plus innings over that two-year sample. That makes sense. It can be hard to predict, and that's mostly because home run per fly ball rate can fluctuate, right? And there's a reason that people look at XFIP is because it stabilizes home run per fly ball rate because it can move around quite a bit. The guys to look at for your home run per nine are your ground ball pitchers. If your home run per fly ball rate fluctuates, but your fly ball rate is low, that home run per fly ball rate can only do so much damage. And so, yes, he's hurt, but Fran Valdez fits this, Sonny Gray, Hyunjin Ryu, these are all guys who are in the top 20 in ground ball rate over the last couple of years and produce a solid home run per nine that I think you can rely on a little bit. I'm not a big Dallas Keuchel fan, but he belongs in that list as well. You can also get a lot of value here out of relievers. So Zach Britton, another guy who's hurt, but always a high ground ball guy. Aaron Bummer, who you mentioned earlier. Liam Hendricks has maintained strong low home run for fly ball rates. You can play Parks here a little bit, right? So if you've got a bunch of Rockies or a bunch of Reds, you're, you're, you might be in trouble. If you've got a bunch of Oakland pitchers, like they're going to give up fewer home runs just by virtue of where they play. I think the thing that's sort of interesting about it is there's a tendency with pitchers sometimes to think that like this guy gets a lot of Ks, which means he doesn't give up a lot of base runners, which means that he doesn't give up a lot of runs. And so all of these stats sort of fall in line, which is not the case with hitters, right? Like, in a five by five league, you draft this guy for steals and this guy for power and this guy for average, but your pitchers, you go out there and you get the guy who's going to get a lot of Ks and therefore going to have a low ERA and therefore have a low whip and therefore get a lot of wins. Saves are obviously a different beast. In in four by four, home run per nine doesn't follow those stats the same way. And so you do have to draft a little bit differently. And so I do like to go out there, especially with my relievers. And my, my relievers, I, I look at two numbers when I'm looking at relievers, their strikeout percentage and their home run per nine. And those are the things I use to target relief pitchers. With starting pitchers, it's a thing I look at and it's a thing I consider. I'm much more likely to roster some of these ground ball guys in this format than I am in others, but it's I'm a little less 
focused on it because I want my ERA and whip to be good. With relievers, there's so many relievers who can give you good ERA and whip that you can use home run per nine to, to separate between them. Awesome. Lot to think about there. I love the addition of the ballpark stuff. I mean, nobody's going out to draft Rockies pitchers, right? But if you're worried about your home runs per nine, definitely consider the ballpark, the ground ball stuff. That all makes sense to me, and that works out nice for you in all those leagues where you have Framber Valdez, and you've got some good news the last week. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. I've got, I have him on five of my six out of new teams. I've got on a couple other teams. I mean, I, if he's his my, my season is going to hinge on his health, unfortunately. And that is probably not a good sign. But again, we will take the good news. Well, folks, first of all, Chad, thank you for the odd new question of the day. It never fails. Thank you for listening to episode seven. You can subscribe to us wherever podcasts are. And Chad coined this term subscribable. So please, wherever you can subscribe to a podcast, give us a rating, subscribe to us. Keepers, long-term, odd new leagues. We talk about it all. You can follow us at at keep or cut. Follow Chad at at Chad Young, and you can follow me at at Pete B Baseball. Thanks for listening, folks, and good luck with all of your drafts this week.